good morning to all of you. I want to, uh, I want to get myself into trouble here today, and I want to engage uh, you in conversation because I'm, I'm as interested in what you might have to think about uh, the subject matter for today um, as much as I'm wanting to disseminate. I will be talking about Carl F.H. Henry, who um, most of you will not know his uh, name now, but a generation ago, he was the most visible intellectual in the evangelical movement. The year was 1976. Uh, Jimmy Carter had just been elected president of the United States, and Newsweek magazine dedicated an entire issue uh, entitled it, The Year of the Evangelical. Uh, evangelicalism was at its zenith at that time, and uh, it was a term that rose to the national consciousness. Now, what I would like to do today is talk a little about, bit about who Paul Henry was, why he was significant, how the uh, term evangelical gained national currency, and what has happened to that term in 2017. Because in 2017, uh, the word evangelical is just synonymous with Trump voter. And the average American uh, layperson doesn't know any difference between evangelical and Trump voter. Carl Henry is rolling in his grave if he thought that that's all that uh, evangelicalism would mean in 2017. Um, so I want to I stir the pot here a little bit. I want to come back to that question of, of uh, what evangelical means, and maybe that can be the, the substance of our uh, question and answer session. We can, we can talk about that. But um, Carl F.H. Henry was uh, significant in many ways. Many of the institutions that came to define what was called the neo-evangelical movement post-World War II uh, he had his hand in. He and Billy Graham were the leading lights of the evangelical movement. Now, uh, my students nowadays are at a point where they don't have any memory of Billy Graham. I think Billy Graham's last major crusade was in 1992 or three, and that is beyond their, their memory. Um, so when I do my Billy Graham impression... The buses will wait for you. The elevators will wait for you. You come. They don't get it. They, they don't laugh anymore because, uh, but, but uh, uh, they didn't do the walk. They don't remember a time in which tens of thousands of people would pack the largest stadiums in America to hear Billy Graham talk. They don't remember a time in which you would be flipping through the channels and you would see Billy Graham preaching on television. They don't remember national Bible literacy campaigns like Power for Living. They don't remember any of this. If Billy Graham was the heart of evangelicalism, Carl Henry was the brains. He was the head. Uh, in that Newsweek article, um, they featured him and Time Magazine called him the leading thinker of the evangelical movement. He was the founding editor of Christianity Today, which is a uh, periodical that you might have uh, 
come across at some point. And when he and Billy Graham started Christianity Today, the idea behind have the top intellectual engagement on everything from politics to economics to culture to the arts from the greatest Christian thinkers in the world, some of whom were not evangelical. Um, some were. But he was trying to get on the radar screen of publications like the New York Times, and the New York Times took Christianity Today seriously once upon a time because Carl Henry was a front-rank philosopher and theologian, Ph.D. from Boston University. So he started Christianity Today. He was on the founding faculty of Fuller Theological Seminary in uh, Pasadena, California. Uh, Many of the other institutions that... uh, came to have national recognition uh, in the Christian movement were founded by Carl Henry, along with others, the National Association of Evangelicals, uh, the Evangelical Theological Society, the 1966 Berlin Congress on World Evangelism, the Lausanne Conference. He was in on the foundations of that. Prison Fellowship. He wrote the, uh, the Statement of Faith. He was Co- uh, Chuck Colson's mentor, theological mentor. Uh, and he was also on the founding editorial board of First Things. Rusty Reno um, was, a, uh, was a frequent lecturer here at the Vocari Seminar. When Carl Henry burst onto the scene uh, in 1947, post-World War II, there was nothing like front-rank evangelical scholarship, Bible scholars, Old Testament, New Testament, theologians, philosophers, who the academy took seriously. He changed that. Today, we have many institutions with faculty members who are taken seriously in the guild, like the American Philosophical Association, to people like Alvin Plantinga from Calvin College and Nicholas Volterstorff, who has spoken here at Vocari. I, I, I remember now, I, it's fine that there's empty seats here today, but I could not believe when I saw empty seats in Vocari seminar when Nicholas Volterstorff was here. I was like, you know, a prophet is not known. This isn't his hometown. I guess Grand Rapids is, but, uh, or uh, now in New Haven. But um, th- this, there was this surge of respectability of the evangelical brand 40 years ago, 50 years ago. What changed? (laughs) But uh, we'll get to that. Um, But in 1948, Carl Henry wrote a book. It's hard to imagine, or maybe it's not, a time in which people who believed that the Bible was actually the word of God had no interest in cultural engagement whatsoever. They thought that their job was, as D.L. Moody said, to be a soul-winning station, to get as many people onto the boat, and you never, ever, post-World War II, talked about social issues, race, politics, economics, the arts. Never. You never, ever talked about it. All you did was you preached the gospel. And in the post-World War II environment, Carl Henry wrote a seminal book that really launched the whole neo-evangelical movement called The Uneasy Conscience 
of modern fundamentalism. Now, what was a fundamentalist? A fundamentalist at that time was not someone on the extreme right wing. They were just somebody that believed that the Bible was the word of God and that people need to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. That was a fundamentalist. They believed that, that the scriptures were true and all that they said and taught. Why would fundamentalism have an uneasy conscience? It did so and would so, Carl Henry said in 1948, because in the post-World War II environment, as the world had been brought to its knees by national socialism and fascism and the totalitarian regimes of communism, the, the West was at a critical juncture in which they, were inter- they might be open to seeing whether or not Christianity had anything to say to the geopolitical sphere. And if all you do is just preach Jesus and you never touch on 90% of what we think about for the rest of the week, you've not done your job. The Bible speaks to every single discipline, every single aspect of culture. And the uneasy conscience is, as Martin Luther King Jr. said in a letter from a Birmingham jail, if the church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early community of Christians, it will rightly be regarded as nothing more than an irrelevant social club for the 20th century. He was writing to white clergy in the South. Carl Henry was writing to clergy across America, saying you have got to get in the game. There have to be institutions that are situated in strategic places, bringing the best of biblical worldview thinking to all subjects. Um, Just as an aside, this is a point of personal privilege. Carl Henry... um, uh, worked for many years with Billy Graham, their dream to start a Christian university in New York City. They failed. They had it done. They, there was not enough interest. And uh, so when I became president of King's, my colleagues at my former institution, Union University, um, f- uh, found and framed a May 9, 1960 article uh, from Carl Henry in Christianity Today, lead editorial, doesn't there need to be a great Christian university in New York City? So we have a college. We're not at a university status. His idea, though, was a research university. Uh, didn't happen. The evangelicals didn't deliver on that. But the uneasy conscience of modern fundamentalism fell like a hand grenade on the bombshell of evangelical pastors in the country because it woke them up to their responsibility. And all of a sudden, colleges like Wheaton, seminaries like Fuller, began to have a broader understanding of what the evangelical movement could be. It could actually speak to culture and be taken seriously. And Think about this. As I was mentioning earlier, there was a time in which uh, the national consciousness understood what Billy Graham thought and taught. And Billy Graham was someone who was a, um, uh, an advisor and a constant presence in every White House from Eisenhower to, to uh, Bush number two. Every White House. 
And he was not politicized in that process with one exception. He got too close to Nixon. Nixon almost took Billy Graham down. Billy Graham did not believe. He, he, he accepted Nixon when Nixon said, I am not a crook, right? He believed him, and he followed through on, on uh, that, and, uh, and Billy Graham was chagrined. But Carl Henry um, thought that it was possible, along with other evangelical leaders, that a biblical worldview could be taken seriously on a national scale and that it could serve as a prophetic voice to both the left and the right. That people need to be called out and called to account from the resources of a philosophical standpoint rooted in uh, the Christian intellectual tradition. And so there was a time where you had Billy Graham's crusade on a national scale. Um, Woody Allen once famously said on the Dick Cavett show uh, that he never had any respect for preachers until he, uh, he showed up and uh, went to hear Billy Graham talk at Yale. And all of a sudden, it was a different story. And Cavett had the same kind of reaction. So you had Billy Graham, you had Carl Henry running Christianity Today. The New York Times was taking notice. And you had people like Francis Schaeffer where, in Labrie. Now, this is pre-the movies, Francis Schaeffer. But there was a time at which Francis Schaeffer was the evangelical Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Hippies, artists, philosophers travel to Switzerland to sit at the feet of Francis Schaeffer. Um, Francis's son, Frankie, who you has gone by the boards, by the way, um, in, in many ways, once said that um, uh, he was told by, um, a, 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 I think it was a writer from Rolling Stone, that he ran into Eric Clapton, and the writer from Rolling Stone said, what are you reading? And Eric Clapton, now this is back when evangelicals published books that people would actually read. Um, Eric Clapton took a copy of Francis Schaeffer's Escape from Reason out of his back pocket. And he said, Jimmy Page gave this to me. Whoa. Right? Now, that, and speaking of that, my next book, which Jason didn't recommend, he didn't want me to speak on this today, uh, my next book is on Larry Norman, who was a rock and roll star who uh, opened up for Janis Joplin and Jefferson Airplane and toured with The Doors and, and Jimi Hendrix. Um, and, uh, but he started Christian rock. He was on Capitol Records. He was on a secular record label singing about Jesus. And artists in that field took Larry Norman seriously, even though... He sung about Jesus. Paul McCartney told Larry Norman, you would be a star if you just shut up about religion. You're such a great songwriter. Why do you have to ruin it with Jesus all of the time? But he, was, he got four secular record contracts. You can't imagine Third Day getting a you know, secular record. Maybe you could. I don't know. But it was a different time. And Carl Henry really thought that there were, there were real stakes involved as to whether or not the Bible was true. It had national import. 
and he was concerned by certain trends in 20th century theology. And we have to also remember that a half century ago, you would have on the front cover of Time magazine uh, people like C.S. Lewis and Karl Barth and Paul Tillich used to be on the front cover of Time magazine getting profiled. Now, that was... Uh, partly because Oswald Chambers, uh, not Oswald Chambers, um, Whitaker Chambers, sorry, and misspoke there. Whitaker Chambers was, was, uh, had an influence there. He was interested in theology. Um, but uh, Carl Henry was worried that there was a drift uh, leftward and that, that the reliability of the Bible was in the balance. And here's a great story along those lines. Um, in 1968, Karl Barth, who at that who was the reigning theologian of the 20th century, um, without controversy, University of Basel, wrote a massive 12-volume uh, series called The Church Dogmatics. He ruled the roost in the post-World War II Christian uh, intelligentsia. And uh, Karl Barth, in many ways, seemed like a traditionalist because he took the Bible seriously, because he was interested in traditional theological issues like Christology and soteriology and so forth. But reading through the church dogmatics, Karl Barth was, was um, concerned because Karl Barth also did not think that the Bible was historically accurate or literally true, and that things like the miracles were, well, maybe they were historical, maybe they're not. But all that really mattered was the, the fact that um, had faith in the faith. And famously, in the church dogmatics, uh, Bart seemed to indicate that it was a matter of some indifference as to whether or not the resurrection was a historical fact. Now, this is everybody thought Carl, that that uh, Karl Barth was was this you know sort of rock ribbed um, Protestant theologian, and in many ways he was. But he still accepted the results of modern historical criticism of the Bible, and uh, so. Karl Barth came to America. It was the Barth in America tour. You know, they had T-shirts printed up. I'm just kidding. But he lectured at famous universities across the country, and several evangelical leaders had these meetings with Karl Barth to meet the great theologian, these showdowns. E.J. Carnell, who was the president of Fuller Seminary, um, uh, was able to meet with Bart in Chicago. And, and when he came back to talk to the student body, they all jammed the hall. I've listened to this lecture. And, and uh, he, uh, he gave uh, a report of their encounter, uh, and the students he were held in, in rapt attention. By the way, Carl uh, Bart was a, a very wonderful man, generous individual. I'll never forget when Carnell told this story, he said that... Um, Karl Barth is a man filled with grace and truth, and it's important that you, going into the ministry, don't get the order wrong. Grace, then truth, right? A nice line. But Karl, Karl Barth um, had, had this sort of underlying uh, modern view of Scripture that 
Carl Henry found troubling. And uh, Bart, by the way, sidebar, um, no extra charge, uh, uh, little detail here. Carl Bart taught himself to speak, read and speak English because he was a huge American Civil War buff. A lot of people don't, don't know this fact, but he got captivated by Bruce Catton's three-volume American Civil War series. And you could because Bart was, uh, you know, uh, watching uh, his home country of Germany descend into National Socialism and, of course, uh, the Holocaust and so forth. And so uh, Bart was interested in other countries who had come through this great conflict and come out onto the other side, a stronger union. And, of course, Bonhoeffer and Bart um, were instrumental in writing the Barman Declaration, which was a, which was an, a call to the church to resist Hitler. Uh, if Metaxas was here, he could tell us more about that. But on the last stop on Carl Henry's lecture tour, uh, or uh, Carl Bart's lecture tour, he was stopping off at Georgetown University, and Carl Henry's... Uh, headquarters for Christianity Today were in Washington, D.C. Okay? Uh, Carl Henry was a journalist. By the way, he was a New Yorker. He went to PS 77 here on the uh, Upper East Side and then became a newspaper man in Long, uh, Long Island uh, before, uh, before he converted and, and went to uh, Wheaton College. And uh, at this seminar uh, for George, at Georgetown, Carl Henry decided to go, and he wanted to put this question to Carl Bart on the resurrection. And so when the question, Bart gave his lecture, and then when the question and answer uh, time came up, um, uh, they asked if there were any questions, and Carl Henry stood up. And they said, please uh, state your name and your institution. And Carl Henry said, Carl H. Henry Christianity Today. My question for Professor is this. If you were a journalist living in the first century and had um, uh, technology that journalists have available to them today, could you have conducted an interview with the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth? Sat down. Carl Barth did not like this question. He did not like this question. He said, this is a category mistake. This is bringing modern categories and trying to put them back into this pre-modern ancient world. And he, harumph, was basically his response. And he said, no, did you say you were from again? And Carl Henry said, Carl F. H. Henry, Christian editor, Christianity Today. To which Bart said, Christianity yesterday. These concerns about the historicity of the Bible and the accuracy of the Bible and the miracles and everything, these are not concerns that the modern theologian should have. It's a category mistake. And in one of the great comebacks, theological comebacks of all time... Henry stood up and said, Christianity yesterday and forever, uh, taking a twist on the, uh, the passage from Hebrews. Um, I got to know Carl Henry personally in his uh, latter years. He became kind of a grandfather to me. I was thinking about him this weekend with Irma coming through. We had moved to Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, 
a tornado had ripped through. It was national headlines. And the phone rang, and I picked up, and I thought it would be my parents or, or uh, you know, my sister, and it wasn't. It was Carl and Helga Henry calling from uh, Watertown, Wisconsin, where he had gone to retire, making sure I was okay. I would go to images with some friends to Watertown, Wisconsin. We'd always go on Easter. Every Easter that he led a sunrise service, Carl Henry would take out a full-page ad, first in Pasadena when he was at Fuller. He would take a full-page ad out and reprint John Updike's poem, Seven Stanzas on Easter, on Easter morning in the, uh, in the L.A. Times and then later, ta- later the Watertown, Wisconsin newspaper. He had Updike's permission uh, for it. But this ties into uh, to the encounter with Karl Barth. For Henry, it mattered whether or not the Bible was actually true. And he reprinted this uh, poem. How, raise your hand if you... one or two here. I'm going to read it because this is the most Carl Henry uh, type of poem that you can imagine from someone who was uh, <clears throat> understood what was at stake, John Updike, maybe not the, uh, the most orthodox Christian or writer himself. But listen to this. This is part of Carl Henry, even though it's Updike's poem. Imagine waking up on Easter morning and reading, seeing a full-page ad with this in it. Seven stanzas at Easter. Make no mistake. If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It is not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent, It is not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence making an event of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we will have an angel at the tomb, Make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, for our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed with remonstrance. Wow. Wow. Carl Henry thought that there were real issues at stake, and he thought that evangelicals needed to keep their reputation. He was a great scholar. 
He wrote After Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism, a book in, uh, actually it was prior to Uneasy Conscience, 1947. It was called Remaking the Modern Mind, where here you had an evangelical scholar engaging with Kantian and Hegelian influences throughout history. He had read Berdeyev, Reinhold Niebuhr, Etienne Gilson, Paul Tillich, the great thinkers of his time and an evangelical pers- uh, perspective to bear. He was dealing with the early onslaught of process theism, Samuel Alexander and Henri Berson, uh, for those of you that appreciate the correct French pronunciation. I always uh, scorch my students for calling him Henry Henri Berson. Um, here he was waiting in, and he, he, was, uh, he was at the vanguard, Carl Henry. And this is what I want to end with today. Henry really that the evangelical movement could be the prophetic voice that culture needed. To, to be above the fray, to be a prophetic voice to all parties, both left and right. And he was um, dedicated to this proposition. I, by the way, I wrote a book about Carl Henry, um, which is why I'm talking about him today, called Recovering Classic Evangelicalism. I, I sort of Frodo ring to Mount Doom. I, I, I succeeded. I think, I think classic evangelicalism maybe died. It will, it will die with Billy Graham. I'm not optimistic, let me just say. But someone asked me in an interview when the book came out, what was the core belief that... And I said, it was this between the faith and ideology. Let me say that again. There's a difference between the Christian faith and ideology. And he was worried in the 70s when Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and Jim Baker with a political understanding of the gospel ways was right, but it began to co-opt what the term evangelical meant, so that the evangelicals simply were uh, a certain political movement, um, the Republican Party at prayer. And Henry, in the uh, Remaking the Modern Mind, talked about the fact that this could very well be a dangerous strategy for evangelicals. And he went all the way back to Plato's Republic. Here's Plato, someone who believes in eternal, transcendent, moral truths, objective truth. Uh, Plato believes that there's a certain standard for morality and ethics and everything else. But In Plato's Republic, there's this famous moment at which uh, Plato openly worries that there's no way to convince people, the average person, of the truth, of this transcendent truth. And so how are we going to get people to believe this? And Plato said the, um, the answer, and Carl Henry's taking this up, making the modern mind, Plato says, what we've got to do is construct one great royal 
convince people that there is something greater. And so here is, uh, here is what Plato says. Well, then I will speak, although I really do not know how to look you in the face or in what uh, words to utter this audacious lie, which I propose to communicate gradually, first to the rulers, then to the soldiers, and lastly to the people. They are to be told that their youth was a dream and that their education and training which they received from us was in appearance only. In reality, all that time they were being formed and fed in the womb of the earth, where they themselves and their arms and appurtenances were manufactured. When they were completed, the earth, their mother, sent them up. And so their country is their mother and nurse. They are bound to advisor for good and to defend her against attacks. And her citizens, they are to regard as children of the earth and their own brothers, citizens. We shall tell them in our fictitious tale, you are brothers, yet God has formed you differently. Some of you have the power to command, the philosopher kings, others to be auxiliaries, soldiers, others to be husbandmen and craftsmen. And God proclaims as a first principle to the rulers and above all else that there is nothing that they should so anxiously guard or with which they are to be such good guardians as to the purity of their race. Such is our tale. We hope that there's a chance of making our citizens believe it. Henry critiques this view because here is Plato who had lofty ideals, but he goes down a nationalist route, a mythological understanding of blood and soil, the nation, in order to get people believe it. And his worry with, uh, with movements in evangelicalism that were away from having a prophetic stance and being just completely in sync with um, uh, a, a particular political ideology, his concern that evangelicals would lose their independence and their prophetic voice and that it would harm the institutions and that we, it would, you would lose. And Henry died sort of a, a pessimistic guy. Um, and uh, I'm indebted to him. And I'll, I'll close with this and then we'll have a few moments for questions. I am really indebted to Carl Henry because I nearly lost my faith in college. I had a professor in college who was an Oxford DPhil um, who was lock, stock, and barrel sold out to the Jesus Seminar, which was the liberal group of biblical scholars who said that Jesus didn't really say most of what we hear him saying in the Gospels. And, of course, the miracles are just sort of uh, psychological interpretations of, for example, Rudolf Boltmann said that, that the, the real message of the feeding of the 5,000 is not that, you know, actual uh, bread and fish were multiplied and a miracle occurred, but that this is a story about how the teaching of Jesus' uh, uh, call to love caused everybody to share. Okay, this is this is it's called demythologization. Uh, I I had a 
professor like that in college. My college textbook was Marcus J. Borg, Jesus, A New Vision. I vividly remember reading these words. Jesus certainly never claimed to be a deity. He certainly did not think of himself as God's eternally begotten son. And uh, he never claimed to save anyone from their sins. I read that at an evangelical college. And my father, godly pastor, the, uh, you know, of a country parson, adorned with all the virtues of a Christian, uh, was horrified that this is what was happening to his son. And he gave me C.S. Lewis to read. I didn't take C.S. Lewis seriously because I was reading Kant and Nietzsche. Um, he gave me you know, books by Josh McDowell and, you know, other apologists. I swept them aside. And he said, son, before you give up the faith, I want you to read one last thing. He said, go to your library and find a set of books by Carl Henry called God, Revelation, and Authority. Henry wrote a magnum opus on divine revelation, six volumes, um, very hard to read. I'm warning you, if you, any of you go out to the bookstore and try to find it right now, uh, Miller, a great theologian of the 20th century, once said to me, tell Carl I love him, and I hope he someday translated into English. When Carl could write at a very, very high level. Uh, and I went down and opened the first of God's revelation and authority. The modern age is a fear that man can hear any certain word from God. I was like, wow, that is something transcendent, something from outside the world of politics and, and, and war. And Violent, something from outside coming in. I began reading God authority and was over my head, but I figured if this guy, this philosopher with a PhD from Boston University can believe that the Bible is the word of God, I can too. So uh, my faith came back. So I have Carl Henry to thank for that. And I thank you for coming today. Thank you so much.